John 16, 5 through 15. Now I am going to him who sent me. None of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last year I saw a story on the TV show 60 Minutes about a woman named Jessica Buchanan. Some of you may have seen the same story. Um, She actually grew up not too far from here, near Cincinnati, Ohio. And as a young woman, she developed a real heart and concern for um, children in Africa who were being forced into um, being armed soldiers in various civil wars and, and conflicts. And so as a young woman, she became a children's aid worker working in the country of Somalia. And her work was primarily to do um, teaching to children about how to avoid landmines and how to deal with that. Well, while there, she also met a Swedish man who eventually became her husband and who was also an aid worker in Africa in the same country. And one day she was about to make a trip to southern Somalia, which I understand is actually the the more dangerous part of Somalia. There were more conflicts. And she called her husband to tell him about the trip, and he tried to talk her out of it, knowing that that was a more dangerous place to go. And he said eventually he gave in, and he relented and said it was okay that she went. But he said before she left, she texted him, and in the text she said that uh, if I get kidnapped on this trip, will you come and rescue me? And again, probably one of those playful things she's saying to her husband. And her husband, of course, answered he would. Didn't understand what that meant when he said it, because on that trip, her car was stopped by 23 armed assailants, and her and her Danish co-worker were taken into captivity. She said the group of men that took them, men and children, some of the very boys she came to care about, uh, were all, um, most of them high on an amphetamine-like substance that they chewed called cat, and she said it was a, it was a pretty horrible, ugly experience, as ugly as you can imagine. They were taken away and put on an open mat out in the desert most of the time, exposed to the extreme heat and extreme cold in the night, but with nothing to protect themselves. She said they had to um, 
tolerate things like mock executions. Uh, They would come to them, hold guns to their head, and act like they were going to shoot them and then wouldn't act like they were going to behead them and then wouldn't. Had to tolerate those kind of things day in and day out. Her captors said one of them was even wearing a wristband that showed that he had been at one of her sessions teaching about um, avoiding landmines. Um, And again, horrible situation that she was in, in her her co-captor. She said she thought there is no way she'll ever be rescued. They were asking for $45 million ransom. Uh, And she thought, there's no way. Who am I? I'm a nobody from somewhere in the Midwest. Uh, The country that I'm from is halfway around the world. Who in the world is going to care about me? No one's coming up with $45 million to get her out of there, that's for sure. And who could rescue her? Little did she know that her husband was doing everything he could to honor his statement that he would try to rescue her. He was working as liaison between his family and hers. He was talking to every authority he could get to listen to him. Even though the U.S. was in his country, he was doing all he could to communicate with every official there that he could get a hold of. said at one time he put together his own rescue team. He was going to go and try and rescue her himself with his own team. And the FBI eventually talked him out of it, telling him that his chance of success were very small and that if he didn't succeed, if he failed, it was very likely his wife would be tortured and killed as a result. So he chose not to. As I read their story, I thought, I can't imagine what it must have been like to be that husband. To know your wife is in that horrible situation and there's not a thing you can do about it. And the people that can do it, you have so little power to get them to act. You're so helpless. So eventually, um, her captors towards the end of her captivity made her make a video to send to the hostage negotiators to try and get them to give the money. And in the video, she had obviously lost a lot of weight, over 25 pounds. And she mentioned that she thought she had a pretty bad kidney infection. Well, that video was then passed on to American authorities, and doctors looked at it, and doctors concluded that she might only have a couple weeks left to live. So that information was then passed on to President Obama, who then, as a result, ordered a Navy SEAL team to go and effect her rescue. And she said the night that they came, she said it was dark, she was in the middle of the desert, and suddenly gunshots everywhere, and said she just assumed it was a rival gang that was coming to attack the gang that was holding her. So she curled up underneath this mat that she stayed on, and she was just waiting to die. She assumed she was going to be a shot, as a shot as a result. And she said as the gunshots died down, suddenly she heard someone call out her name and realized that that voice had an American accent. Can you imagine what she felt in that moment when she hears that voice? And said she looked up and she saw these soldiers had come to rescue her. Assumed that would never happen. Who would ever do that? And they came to rescue her said they picked her up, one of them picked her up and ran for several minutes into the dark, finally sitting her down and said he could, she could hear them talking about the fact that they were afraid that there still may be one arm, armed gunman out in the bush somewhere in the dark. So he said those men huddled around her and several of them laid over top of her and she realized they were being human shields to guard her from being shot. And they laid on top of her until helicopters finally came to whisk them away and take them to safety. She didn't realize until she got back with her husband all he'd been doing to effect her rescue. I thought about that husband. As a husband, I thought about that husband and what that must have felt like. I thought again how helpless you must feel. The thing you most want to do, this, this rescue mission you so want to accomplish and so powerless in the face of it. 
how he must have felt when he found out that the whole U.S. military was going to join him in that rescue mission. How different that was in that moment, I'll bet. And there was success. She was brought home. I tell you that story because I want, you, I want to try and encourage you to think about the situation that Jesus and his disciples were in when these words that you just heard read were spoken. On that night, Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem. They've come there with a great triumphant entry into Jerusalem. These wonderful expectations of all that was going to take place. And suddenly now Jesus is beginning to tell them the story of what's going to happen. Because what was going to take place was in the next 24 hours from the time these words were spoken, one of their own was going to betray him. He was going to be arrested. He was going to be horribly beaten. And he was going to be hung on a cross to die. This is what's coming. He's beginning to point to that story and to tell them what to expect. Can you imagine? Your, your hopes are so big. What you, what you expect to happen. And suddenly he's telling these horrible events are going to take place. In fact, he's been pointing to the fact that, you know, you can expect to be hated. You've seen the way at times I've been hated. But Jesus is the one who's been taking those attacks. And now he says you can expect those attacks to come at you. You're going to be hated in that way. In fact, you're going to be so hated that they're going to throw you out of the synagogue. And again, I don't think we can fully understand what that means. In those small communities, to be thrown out of the synagogue, it's to be rejected by everybody you know, by your community and by your families, to be ostracized and thrown to the outside. You can expect that to happen. You you know, passionate Peter, the one who loves Jesus so much, it's going to get so bad that even Peter is going to deny Christ. This is what's coming. Expect it to be hard. Expect it to be bad. Bad things are happening. And all along, and right up to this time, Jesus has been pointing to the fact that everything you hope for depends upon him. Everything. He's just told him that I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. He's just finished telling them that he is, he is like the vine and they're like the branches. And everything they hope for, the, the very life they want to live, their fruitfulness, their ability to succeed at this mission they're called to, it depends on their connection to him and staying in him. Everything is about being with him. Everything is going to get harder. And then in the midst of all of this, What does he tell him? Chapter 16 and verse 7. It's for your good that I'm going away. It's for your good that I'm going to go away. I'm going to go away to be with the Father. Now when I I think of hearing those words in that moment, I'm not thinking I'm going, yeah, that sounds like it's for my good. I'm picturing, you know, the teacher who stands over me with a wooden paddle saying, now this is for your good. I think... Yeah, maybe. I'm not really feeling it right now. That doesn't feel like it's for my good. But Jesus is trying to help them, is trying to assure them, hard times are coming. Everything depends upon me. I'm going away, but I want you to know, it's actually for your good that I'm going away. And he's been preparing them for this moment all along. Look back in John chapter 14 and verse 16. He says this, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. You will never, ever be alone. You never have to worry about that. The one I am sending will be with you. He'll be in you. You will never, 
ever experience aloneness again. I'm going to make sure of that. Bad things are coming. I'm going away to be the Father. But don't worry, you're not going to be alone. John chapter 14, verse 26. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. It will remind you of everything I have said to you. These people have sat at the feet of Jesus, who've been amazed by his teaching. They've seen him perform these remarkable miracles. They have seen him stand before the the smartest people they knew and confound them with his teaching. They've seen him stand up before the most powerful people they knew, and they didn't know what to do with him. And he says, I'm going to go away. But Jesus says, the things I've been teaching you, the way I've been guiding you, it's still going to be with you because the Spirit's going to remind you of it. Matter of fact, he's going to continue that teaching. It isn't going to end as I go away. It's going to continue on. I'm going to be with you. John chapter 15, verse 26. When the Advocate comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. So Jesus is not just saying to them, you know what, things are going to get hard. Things are going to get bad. I'm going to go away, and, and you guys, it's going to be okay. You're going to survive. He's actually saying to them, I'm going to go away in this rescue mission that I have come for to save those that are lost, to rescue a lost world. You need to carry that mission on. You need to continue to, to teach and to proclaim that truth that you've heard from me. But again, you don't have to do that alone. Someone else is going to testify with you. Matter of fact, he, he has said before that the, the world can't receive the Spirit because they don't believe in him. They don't know him. And, and I think the way that, that the Spirit most often is going to continue to testify, to point people back to Jesus, is actually through the church. He most often is going to do his work through us, through our words, through our teaching of his word, through our proclamation of his word, through our lives and the way we live and the way we love one another. He's going to continue to point people to Jesus very, very often through us, but in a way we couldn't have imagined without him. Why is Jesus saying it's better that he's going away? Why is it a good thing? I think the obvious answer is, because Jesus, as he walked with them in the flesh, he was limited by those same things we are, by space and by time. Imagine if Jesus is here today with us. It seems like it'd be better, doesn't it? It seems like it would be easier to accomplish this mission that we're called to. Those people who, who want to ridicule you because of what you believe, those people who think you're crazy to say the things you say. Wouldn't it be easier if you could say, but here he is. Look at him. You can, you can hear his words in his own voice. You can touch him. You can see him. Doesn't it feel like that mission would be easier if that was true? And he says, it's actually for your own good that I go away. Imagine trying to get an audience with Jesus as he walks here in the flesh. Jesus, who, who is so available to everybody, but still imagine trying to get an audience with him. Imagine trying to get an audience just with your favorite celebrity. Imagine trying to get an audience with, uh, with the President of the United States, with a U.S. Senator. Maybe if you jump through the right hoops and you know the right people, maybe you can get before them. How much time are you going to get with them? How, how much are they going to be available to you simply because of those limits? 
I can't be with all people in all places at all times. Jesus says, I go away, but I'm going to send somebody who will be that. He will be God's presence with you in all places, in all people, at all times, working with you everywhere. It's going to be better that I go away. Again, sometimes hard for us to imagine that could actually be better. But look at what is said to the newfound church in the book of Acts. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come to you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In you and through you, the Spirit is going to bring power. And through you, he's going to bring this message everywhere to everyone in every place. We're the vehicle often. But because he's with us and in us and alongside us doing this good work, there is hope that this work will be accomplished in a way we could never imagine without him. He goes on then and he tells us what the work of the Spirit would look like, at least a part of what it will look like. In John chapter 16 and verse 8, he says this, When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, that's the version that you heard Josh read up here. But if you notice, the version on the screen was a little different. And that's because that's the older NIV translation was up on the screen. It says this, He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. The newer version, the translator said, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. The reason is because the word they're trying to translate there, they struggle with a little because it seems to have both these meanings. One is he'll prove they're in the wrong. He'll show them that the ideas you had about sin and about righteousness and about judgment are all wrong. But it doesn't stop there. He's not just this is not just a mental exercise. Let's show you that you're wrong about it. But the word also carries the idea that he's going to affect change. He's, he's doing this in a way that will change the hearts and bring people to repentance. He's doing again what we can't do. Maybe sometimes we can change the minds. Maybe sometimes we can get new ideas in there. But changing the hearts, hardened hearts against God, the Spirit has to do that work. We get to proclaim, we get to testify, but that real convicting work, that's a work of the Spirit. It's a work we really can't do without him. And says he's going to do that. So he goes on and he kind of explains a little more what that means. As I thought about this passage, an experience came to mind. When I was a kid, I went to a place called Mystery Hill that is up by a Cedar Point Amusement Park. Now, maybe some of you have been to Mystery Hill. It's one of those rip-off tourist traps that you go to when you're a kid. And I think there are several of these little places around the United States, most of them by amusement parks. And when you go to Mystery Hill, you pay your ridiculous fee and... And you go in, and it's probably one of those places that the kids begged the parents to take them, and somehow they gave in, and we went. And you go in, and you walk this crooked little path, and they got a kind of tilted bridge you go across, and you got to fight to get across. And then you go up a hill, and you go into this house, and the house is all kind of sitting at an angle on the hill. And when you go in the house, everything in the house is on an angle. All the furniture and everything is on that same angle. And then what they'll do is the the people in there will, for instance, they'll pump a pump and water comes out and the water appears like it goes uphill. And then they'll roll a ball across the floor and it looks like the ball rolls uphill. And then one of them gets up on the table and leans and it looks like they're standing like this. Like, how can they do that? And, And the way it works, it's just an optical illusion. The whole house is askew. The whole house is sitting out of balance, out of level. And we're so used to that being how we judge what is level. We're so used to seeing the floor and the tabletops and the chairs and the top of them saying, that's level. That we, even when we know we're standing like this, 
we still want to say that's level. That's normal. And everything that's not going that way is abnormal. It's out of kilter. It's out of skew. Well, that's many ways what I thought of when I thought of Jesus being before us. Jesus came into this world and the things we thought were normal, the things that looked like they're just the way they should be, this is true, this is level, this is right. Suddenly, as Jesus is there and present, suddenly we have a a true measure of right and true. And everything is perverted and out of skew. Everything's off kilter. It's not as it should be. We just can't know that unless Jesus is there. And Jesus says, here's the work that the Holy Spirit will do. He'll convince the world that it is wrong about sin. Why? Because people do not believe in me. His work is not done. Jesus has come here and and done this remarkable work. He is able to say it is finished. He accomplished what he is meant to accomplish. But everyone doesn't believe in him. There is still a work to be done. More needs to happen. Because our view of sin many times is sin is something everybody else does, right? I think that a lot. I, I have no problem identifying your sins. I may do the exact same thing, and it doesn't strike me often that that's the exact same thing because it's your sin. Or sometimes when I see my sin, it's kind of that, yeah, but everybody does it, right? So I see my sin, but it's not really a bad thing, right? Because we all struggle with it. It's an our sin, so it's not a big deal. Or once in a while, sometimes I'll say, okay, I see my sin, it's ugly. But you know what? It's, it's a personal thing. It's just about me. It doesn't affect anybody else. And so, again, not that big a deal, not that bad a thing. And to be honest, if sin isn't that big a deal, I feel hope that I can resolve it myself. I can, through my own willpower, I can fix it and I can change it. If it's not that big a deal, maybe I can do a few good things to balance out the bad things. I can resolve it myself. Jesus stands before people, and suddenly they got to do something with him. Because he stands before him. Here is someone who is pure and holy and sinless that they are face to face with. Now all of a sudden, everything that I've held is not so bad looks pretty bad. Everything I thought was pretty close to level is not so level anymore. And, and people res- had to respond to Jesus when he was before him. And they did pretty intensely. Many gave up everything, walked away to follow him and bowed and worshipped him. Because when they saw him, they saw... Everything else is wrong. We need to go to him. Some, when they saw him, wanted to crush and kill him because I don't like him showing that everything here is not the way it should be. I need to get him out of here. Some turned and intensely ran away. But they had to do something with him because to look at Jesus was to see sin is not a small thing. It's not that, it's not that you know, it's just what everyone else does. Because when I stand face to face with Jesus, I can't help but see how far I fall short. And how far off the mark I truly am. When I stand face to face with Jesus, it's not what we all do. Because one stands before me in perfect love and holiness and purity. When I stand before Jesus, it's not just something that affects only me. Because when I stand before Jesus, I see someone who has incredible love for me. Someone who, who deserves my obedience and my reverence. And I see what my sin does. I see what a betrayal my sin is to that one who stands before me. When I see Jesus, it's hard to treat my sin as a small thing. That's pretty close to level. And Jesus said, but the problem is I'm going to be with the Father. And all people don't believe in me. 
They don't see me and understand me. They're not looking at me. But never fear. You need to still testify about me and bring me before them. And the Spirit's going to come and testify about me too and bring me before them. The face of Jesus can still be before them and will be before them. But in a way that you could never imagine because the Spirit is everywhere in all places and all times. He'll convince the world that it's wrong about righteousness. Why? Because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. When Jesus was on the earth, what is one of the things he often did? He was pointing out that the things they called righteous were nothing but a hollow shell. The Pharisees, the people that that were the example of righteousness in his world, what's he call them? Whitewashed tombs. Look pretty on the outside, but inside, dead man's bones. Inside, death and rot. He's saying, you know, the things you're calling righteousness, they're just, they're just kind of a false imitation of it. There's no substance underneath it. It's just shallow. It's not real righteousness if you look closely. When Jesus stands before you, you see someone who is right with the Father. You see someone in his love, in his obedience, in his submission, in the things he's willing to do, everything about him screams he is in right relationship with his Father. Now where I am seems pretty out of skew. Not the way it should be. Then finally, he says, he'll convince the world that it is wrong about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. If sin isn't a big deal, and if I'm pretty righteous, you know, matter of fact, I look around at all you, and I, I feel okay about me. You know, some be a little better than me, some be a little worse, but I'm, I'm in there someplace. I'm sure if Jesus stands before me, I realize how far short I, I fall from righteousness, from what it means to be in right relationship with God. And if, if I think I'm not that far from what it means to be right, if I think my sin is no big deal, then why in the world would I expect judgment? Right? I can handle it. I can manage it myself. I can work this out. Why in the world would there be a harsh judgment? Why would I be condemned? Because it's really not that big a deal. It's not that bad. But Jesus stands before them and we see the incredible battle that's being fought. We see in the cross Satan throwing his very worst at at Christ. Satan truly believing that this is going to be his moment of victory. That Christ is going to be hung on that cross and his greatest weapon, death, is going to prove to others his power. Going to show his victory that he's the ruler over the world. And what's God do? He turns the table in that moment. And the cross becomes the moment of Christ's glorification. Instead of it being the time that lifts Satan up, it's a time that Satan is shown to be the liar that he is. He's shown to be one who absolutely has failed. And Christ rises again to show that he's the true ruler over all creation. He's the one who deserves our worship and he's the one who deserves to be followed. Jesus said, John chapter 12, verse 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Christ says, this will be the moment of my victory. This is the moment that that Satan is truly shown to be condemned. And Jesus says, the Spirit's coming. I'm going away to be the Father, but the Spirit's coming because people need to understand about judgment. They need to understand there is, this battle has been fought and this battle is over. To choose to still believe the lies of Satan is to follow one who is condemned and to join him in condemnation. To reject Jesus is to take on what Satan has. 
to be condemned. Judgment is a big deal. What you lose, the cost, is a big deal. Your sin is a big deal. Righteousness is not what you've been calling it. You've been wrong. Turn. Turn to the one in whom you can find holiness and purity and righteousness and forgiveness. Turn to him because this is a big deal. And we could never see it and never understand it apart from Christ standing before us. And he says the Holy Spirit is being sent because he is going to continue to put Christ before you. He's going to continue that work alongside us, with us, through us, sometimes despite us. He's going to continue that good work. Theologian James Packer once wrote this. It says, As the Spirit stands behind us, throwing light over our shoulder onto Jesus who stands facing us. The Spirit's message to us is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, get to know me. But always look at him and see his glory. Listen to him and hear his word. Go to him and have life. Get to him and taste his gift of joy and peace. The Spirit, we might say, is the matchmaker, the celestial marriage broker, whose role it is to bring us in Christ together and ensure that we stay together. That's the role of the Spirit, always pointing us to Jesus, bringing Jesus before people, and, and getting in where we can't to their very hearts and helping them to see as we can't imagine they could see. It's done with us. He's doing it with others, helping them see Jesus. But just as that is the work of the Spirit and he joins us, we join him. We join him in doing that work. It's not to point attention to ourselves. It's not to say how great we are. But it's always to join him in that work of pointing others to Jesus. See him. See his face. Because if you see his face, everything looks different. The things that once seemed normal seem perverted now. If you see him. That's our job. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify. That's our job. Uh, We are called to be a part of this rescue mission, this great rescue mission. Um, The reality is sometimes that feels hopeless to me. Sometimes I feel incredibly inadequate to do that, to be a part of that. To call people not just to salvation from for eternity, but to call people to life right now in Jesus Christ. I so often feel inadequate about that. I love Brian's prayer earlier. The Christ has come to rescue us, not just to rescue us from hell, but to rescue us from this life that is so meaningless without him. He rescues us every day. And he's called us to join him in that rescue mission. That's what we're to do. That's the great role we have. And when I really stop and think about that, when I look at people before me, when I look at my neighbors, when I look at people that I, friends that I have that don't know Christ, I've got to tell you, sometimes that just seems like there is no way uh, I could ever succeed at that mission. I feel inadequate. I feel like I don't have the right words. I don't know enough. Questions are going to come that I don't have answers for. I'm not even a good enough person to really be that one who can represent Christ to you. It feels hopeless sometimes. I feel kind of helpless And be honest, it's hard to enter into something that you don't have a lot of hope of success at. Jesus was sitting with a group of people that he knew were going to feel the same way. That very quickly they were going to feel like things are hopeless and we're helpless and he's not here beside us and we could never carry on. And the thing Jesus wanted them to know so badly was, you will not be alone. You absolutely will not be alone. Matter of fact, 
it is good I'm going away because the one who's going to come will be in you, will be with you, will be testifying beside you, and will be testifying through you. This is not a hopeless mission. Join it. Be a part of it because remember who's with you. God is with you as you go. I want to end by reading a prayer. This is a prayer that I took from a book of Puritan prayers. Um, And it's actually a prayer to the Holy Spirit. Now, I know some will say, well, the normal um, kind of procedure for prayer laid out in Scripture is praying to the Father in the name of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't think that means it's wrong to ever pray to the Spirit or pray to the Son, but that is probably the normal pattern in Scripture. But here is a prayer that's actually a prayer to the Holy Spirit. And And I want you, as I read it, to close your eyes and to just think about the words, and I hope you'll make these words yours, that this will become our prayer. So if you would, pray with me. O God, the Holy Spirit, you who proceeds from the Father and the Son, have mercy on us. When you first hovered over chaos, order came to birth. Beauty robed the world and fruitfulness sprang forth. Move, we pray, upon our disordered hearts. Take away the infirmities of unruly desires and hateful lusts. Lift the mists and darkness of unbelief. Brighten our souls with the pure light of truth. Make them fragrant as the garden of paradise, rich with every good fruit, beautiful with heavenly grace, and radiant with rays of divine light. Fulfill in us the glory of your divine offices. Be our comforter, light, guide, and sanctifier. Take of the things of Christ and show them to our souls. Though you, Through you may we daily learn more of his love, his grace, compassion, faithfulness, and beauty. Lead us to the cross and show us his wounds the hateful nature of evil, the power of Satan. May we there see our sins as the nails that transfix him, the cords that bound him, the thorns that tore him, and the sword that pierced him. Help us to find in his death the reality and immensity of his love. Open for us the wondrous volumes of truth and it is finished. Increase our faith in the clear knowledge of atonement achieved, expiation completed, satisfaction made, guilt done away, My debt paid, my sins forgiven, hell vanquished, heaven opened, and eternity made ours. O Holy Spirit, deepen in us these saving lessons. Write them upon our hearts that our walk may be sin-loathing, sin-fleeing, and Christ-loving. And suffer no devil's device to entice or deceive us. Amen.